We're continuing this series about creation. And so I thought, you know, to make you guys feel comfortable, I'd start you off with a little test, just to see how much you know. So I'm going to start a sentence. I want you to fill in the blanks and just shout it out. Okay, so here's a sentence. In the beginning, God... Very good. You guys have memorized scripture. You're awesome. You guys just recited Genesis 1-1. And even if you never read the Bible, never walked into a church, or even believe in it, you have probably heard that because it's one of the most familiar lines in literature in the Western Hemisphere. But because it is so familiar, we sometimes assume that we just understand everything about it and just sort of gloss over the creation story. Um, So I have a second test for you. All right, so when we see Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what picture comes to your mind when you heard the word earth? Was it this? If that's what came to your mind, raise your hand. Yeah, because it makes sense. I mean, we know what the earth looks like. We have seen this beautiful big blue globe just spinning through space. But if that is what image came to your mind when we read Genesis 1-1, then you already are missing the intent that the author had. You're already imposing an idea into the story that was never there. Because when the original author of the creation story in Genesis 1 wrote that line, when it said earth, this is what the author was imagining. Just the ground beneath his feet. In the beginning, God created the skies, the heavens, and the earth, the ground below me. And it's just an example that would we our first mistake when reading the Bible is forgetting that it is ancient Hebrew literature. It's not like every other book that you grew up with. It's not like your fifth grade history textbook where it just went chronologically left to right and just told you how everything was. So we have to appreciate that this is actually a collection of books written by almost 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. It has a different culture, different language, and it even uses different literary styles. The Bible is comprised of narrative, there's poetry, a third of it is poetry, and even prose discourse, like lecture. And if we don't keep all of this in mind, we can really miss the message that the author intended. Biblical scholar John Walton puts it this way. Effective communication requires a body of agreed-upon words, terms, and ideas, a common ground for understanding. For the speaker, this often requires accommodation to the audience by using words and ideas they will understand. For the audience, if they are not native to the language and cultural matrix of the speaker... This means reaching common ground may require seeking out additional information or explanation. In other words, the audience has to adapt to a new and unfamiliar culture. But how often when we open the Bible and read scripture are we lazy? We just want the author to do all of the work and we'll just read it and take it at face value. And John Walter is reminding us that no, We, the modern-day reader, have to put a little effort in. We have to do a little bit of work. And I can remember the first time I had to wrestle with this idea. 
I wasn't crazy about it. It was about 20 years ago. I was on staff at the first church I ever worked for, and I was having this argument, discussion, with my boss, the pastor, and I was saying, I don't think that it should be so hard to, like, understand Scripture. I don't think we should have to do all this work and understand all the context and meaning. I think God would have just made it simple, and it would just be straightforward, and we could just read it at face value. And his response was he just smiled at me. And I was pissed. <laughs> but I have to say, 20 years later, I totally get the smile. Because now, after all this time and studying the Bible, I appreciate the purpose and the pleasure of having to do some work when reading Scripture, of having to like dig a little bit deeper and wrestle with it and ponder it and meditate. Because then it starts to like get in us, and it starts to stick with us, and it just messes with us, and it can transform us. There's something beautiful about it. And to think that it can somehow do that with people in different cultures, different times, it's amazing. So, as we approach this creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, I want to just scratch the surface on a couple of ways that we can do some work when reading the scripture. And I appreciate I am stepping into a minefield because this story, this brings up a lot of stuff for some people. Some people have drawn some pretty tough lines in the sand about what it means and what it says. So all I ask is that you just go for the ride, bear with me, and just consider some things. So first of all, when looking at scripture, we have to think about a couple of things. We have to think about the ancient context, the cultural context, and the literary context. So beginning with the ancient context, I'm going to go back to our illustration with the earth picture. So you guys picture the globe because we know we are on a planet and it's round. But the ancient authors and the ancient readers assumed that the earth was flat. And so we have to appreciate the context in which they understood the world. So there's a thing called ancient cosmology and there's a picture right here. This is how they pictured the world. So the ground, it was this disk floating on water below, and there was also water above. And the sky, the rakia, was a solid dome. So just imagine if you're standing outside, it sort of looks like a dome. You see it going from left up and to your right. And the solid dome encased the sun and the moon, but every once in a while it would open up windows and allow the water that was above to come down as rain. And we needed something to keep the ground up on the water, so there were pillars below the ground, and they're Sheol. Landon just sung about Sheol. So when you read things about, like, the pillars of the earth or the foundations of the earth, that's what they're picturing. And we don't appreciate it if we don't understand the ancient context. So that's one step we have to do. The next one is cultural context. We have to appreciate that the creation story in Genesis 1 was not written in isolation. It was not written in a vacuum. It was written in a culture that was also surrounded by other cultures. So the Israelites, they had some neighbors. They had the Babylonians. They had the Egyptians. They had the uh, Canaanites. And each of those civilizations had their own creation stories. And when, if we look at those, we see some crazy stuff. Like we have Marduk and Tiamat. They're having this fight and like... This one god slices the other god in half. It's sort of like Game of Thrones and like eyeballs fall out and become rivers. And there's a lot of bloodshed. There's violence. 
young teenage boys would love these stories, you know? And it's just chaotic, and it's violent, and it's just a mess. And by the time those stories get to the place where humanity comes into the picture, we're usually created to be slaves for the gods. So when you keep those stories in mind about what's culturally happening, all of a sudden the Genesis story stands out as like, whoa, this is something totally different. I mean, think about it. The Israelites were like, nope, not a lot of gods, one God. There's no chaos, no strife, no violence. God just spoke. And he took what was formless and void, or in Hebrew, it's the tohu bavohu, which is the wasteland and the wild, and he brings life and order out of it. And God has purpose, and God has love for his creation. And when it comes to creating man, like in Genesis 2, it's this beautiful picture of God having hands and just like forming us personally out of the soil, and then breathing his spirit, his ruach, his breath, into man to create life. It's a beautiful picture. And when you look at this one story that is just so different from all the other creation stories, you're like, hey, maybe they were in dialogue with each other. And the Israelites were saying, hey guys, we know you think you know how this all came about, but let us point out what the one true God is really like. And last, we have the literary context. Now, this is where some people really get their panties in a wad. There's two creation stories, Genesis 1, and then you flip the page, Genesis 2. And to really frustrate you, they tell the story differently. Like, what the heck? What was the author doing? Well, we have to remember that um, sometimes we use different literary styles to communicate about the same thing. Now, I want to show a diagram of how the two stories differ. So Genesis 1, it's kind of a cosmic view, and the order goes, it's a seven-day framework, and it goes land, plants, animals, to humanity. Genesis 2 is much more up close. It's focusing a lot much more on humanity, and God does it in one day. He was super efficient in this one. And the order goes land, man, plants, animals, and ladies, listen, where the culmination of the story finishes with women. All right, so why are there two different stories? What's going on here? Well, because sometimes we like to tell the same story two different ways. And the Bible does this all the time. Like you can read in Exodus the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt and walking through the um, parted Red Sea. And then right after it, there's Miriam's song. And she tells about the whole story, but she uses it in like poetry. It's different. And a modern example of this that some of you might be familiar with is Taylor Swift. I bet you weren't expecting that. All right. I know of Taylor Swift. I'm not a huge fan. But one thing I do know about Taylor is she has dated a lot of guys. And you can Google and read about all these different relationships she's had with all these famous men, right? You can go to Rolling Stone, you can go to People Magazine, you can go all over the place, and you can read articles that provide information about those relationships. But what else can we do? We can just put in one of her songs, because apparently she writes a lot of songs about these relationships. I mean, this is like her bread and butter. If I was a guy, I don't know that I'd date her, because I would just end up being her next top 10 hit. But what is the point of her writing the song? Is it to provide information? No, it's to provide 
the emotion. She wants you to connect with what's going on inside her. She wants you to feel it. She wants you to experience it. And so she's using metaphors and symbolism to explain the story and to have you connect with it. And we see that happen a lot in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 1, it resembles a song, poetry. The first thing you read when you read the whole chapter of Genesis 1 is this repetition. God said, God said, and God said. Or, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. So there's repetition, but there's also some symmetry. I've got this diagram above us, and when you break down the seven days for Genesis 1, the first three days are creating domain. So the first one is time, the second one is that dome ceiling that we talked about, that, and then we have the land. So time, what's above, what's below. Then days four, five, and six create the inhabitants for those corresponding domains. So you have the sun and the moon, you have the fish and the birds, you have the animals and human beings. And then it finishes with day seven, where God rests and he dwells and he enjoys his creation. And so we see it's like a picture, it's sort of a song celebrating things, but for the ancient um, Hebrew uh, reader, it also would stir up something else in them. It would remind them of the seven-day temple pattern. You see, every time that they had a sacred temple that they were dedicating, like the tabernacle, for instance, when they were in the wilderness and they had to pack it up and then put it out and that became God's dwelling place among them in the wilderness. Every time they set it up, it was a seven-day celebration to uh, celebrate all of who God was and what God did and who they are. And on the seventh day, God would come and rest upon this dwelling place, this temple, and dwell among them. They did the same thing with Solomon's temple and with Ezekiel's temple. And so for a lot of uh, ancient Hebrew readers, they would see this and go, this reminds me of the temple ceremony and the seven days that we would do to celebrate that, which culminated in God's dwelling. So for them, the seven-day design is like a literary statement about the meaning and purpose of creation, that all of creation is like this cosmic temple that God has come to dwell in. It's like the ultimate cathedral. And then Genesis 2 is more narrative, and it's focusing on the nature of humanity. And Tommy's going to talk about that in two weeks, so I'm going to let it slide. So, Genesis 1 and 2 each offer a distinct statement about the nature and purpose of humanity. But neither chapter aims to offer a literal, scientifically-oriented account of human origin. And this is where some of us get frustrated. We just are obsessed with, well, how did he do it? Was there a big bang? Did he use evolution? How long did it take? Was it six literal days or was it millions of years? And if that is all we're focusing on, we're missing the point. Because the author of Genesis 1 and 2 wasn't interested in that. That wasn't the point of the story. And he didn't give us those details. Yet we often want to fill in the blanks with our own details to make it fit the narrative that we believe. And so then we're missing the whole message. We're missing the author's intent. And so I just ask that maybe we just trust in all the stories of the Bible where it's missing the details that we so desperately want that we consider and trust 
that what is provided is all we need. I like the way these biblical scholars put it. The early chapters of Genesis accurately present two accounts of cosmic and human origins in the language and ideas of the ancient Hebrews. These texts should not be removed from their ancient context and read as if they referred to the process of cosmic or human origin in 21st century scientific terms. They speak in terms of an ancient Near Eastern perception of the world and should be interpreted within that setting. When we discern the meaning of the text in their ancient context, we find that they constitute a worldview statement about God and his relationship to the world and about humans and their relationship to God and the world. This basic worldview statement transcends its ancient cultural setting and commands the attention of God's people in all places and all times. Do you get that? There's a piece in the message. There's a message that is transcending all of time. So even before people realized there was a planet and it wasn't just flat, it was reaching them and even to us. And 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, it will still transcend and reach and tell its message. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the transcending message in the creation story? Well, the things that we do know are one. Who? God. And the Bible doesn't even bother trying to explain where God came from. It's like just God is. And God did this. God spoke. And God created. And we also know what? Everything. God created everything. And we know why. Because it was good. So when we consider all of these things, and especially the goodness of creation, we have to ask ourselves, what impact does it have on us? Like, what do we do with that? Well, there's a lot. First of all, we should care for creation because God cares. Because, cre- because of creation's goodness, we are called to care for it. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Did you catch that? It's not just the humans that he made, the people that he made, but it's all that he has made he is merciful to. So it's not just about us, but how often do we want to make it just about us? And he loves and respects and cares for creation so much, he even made a covenant with creation. Now, when we think about covenants in the Bible or promises from God to his people, the ones that come to mind are like Abraham, Moses, David, or in the New Testament, the covenant that Jesus makes with us, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. But God also made a covenant with creation. And we see that in Genesis 9. It's after the flood. And Noah and his family and all the inhabitants of the ark come back to the earth to inhabit it. And God says this, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. He cares and respects creation so much he made a promise to creation as well not just us. Because creation is family. 
I mean, creation is like our brother from another mother. I mean, we have the same father. And he loves both of us fiercely and created us each with our own purposes. So we need to remember that and not simply view the world as our own personal amusement park, just meant for our pleasure and consumption. And we also have to remember that caring for the world was in our first job description. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And that phrase, keep it, in Hebrew is sharmer. And it means to guard, to protect. We are called to guard and protect creation. That's one of the reasons God made us. So I know for a lot of you, you're thinking, all right, the way I guard and protect creation. So I'll recycle more. I'll watch my carbon footprint. I mean, there's a lot of practical things that we can do to care and protect the environment. But there's one that goes a lot deeper, and it's very personal. And Isaiah 24 addresses it. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Do you see that? The earth lies defiled under us because of our sin. Creation is not as it should be and is being punished because of us. Our sin actually impacts the environment because we're all interconnected. It's not just, you know, your own personal thing that just happens to you or maybe the people around you. It has a rippling effect everywhere. Our greed, our selfishness, our pride, our envy can all wreak havoc all around us. Just take the sin greed, for instance. That's a pretty easy one. I mean, when we're greedy, we can just ravage creation and just, just rip all of its resources out of it and just leave the land barren. Or even like I thought about like the poaching that I see about in Africa for these animals, not for eating or consuming them. It's just for the prize of them. It's disgusting. Our greed brings death and chaos, which is the opposite of what God does in Genesis 1, bringing life and order. So our charmer looks like protecting the environment, but it also looks like dealing with our sin so that we can come to this place of loving and caring for the environment as we do God and our neighbors. Secondly, we connect with God through creation because of its goodness. Romans 1.20 says, for his, which is God, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Have you ever like heard yourself say or heard someone else say, you know, if I just had proof God existed, then I'd believe. Or if I could just see God with my own eyes, then I would believe. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, just open your eyes. It's right there in front of you. All of creation is showing who God is and the nature of him. So everything from like the food that you eat to the dog that you play with to the forest that you walk through, all of it reveals God. It's right 
there in front of you if you just open your eyes. You know, as I look at people's Facebook feeds, especially in the summer as everyone's on vacations and posting like these amazing envy-inducing photos, it's just awestruck, like the beauty of creation. And like sunsets, I mean, even just people taking pictures of a sunset when they were driving home, it's like, what is it about a sunset that makes us pause, that makes us linger and just look at it? I mean, it's not doing us anything except... I think it's stirring something in us because it's revealing God and we're connecting on some spiritual level. I mean, all of creation, the beauty and the wonder of it is showing us God. Could you imagine if God had an Instagram account? Like the pictures that would be on that feed and you would just be like, oh, oh my God, oh my God. And God's comment and every single one would be like, did it again. (laughs) I would subscribe to that one. Or I could just walk outside. So in Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And I love this in Job. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heaven and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of everything and the breath of all mankind. Isn't that awesome? And it's just this picture that creation is our teacher, And it's teaching us so many things. Like, for example, and and if I read every single verse on creation, we'd be here a really long time. So I just picked a couple. But there are tons that talk about how creation worships God continually. Like, it says, like, the mountains shout for God, and the trees are clapping for joy, and even the jackal in the desert worships the creator. And they're doing it all the time. We get bothered if we have to come here once a week. What can we learn from creation about worship and about how it's just a continual focus and celebration of God? And we also see from creation, they teach us to just be who God made you to be. Just be who God made you to be. You don't see the tree trying to be an elk and you don't see the fish trying to be a bird or any of that stuff. They just are who God created them to be doing what God created them to do. We could learn a lot from them. Creation also shows us what God is like. In that Romans verse, it said, in all things that have been made, we can see God. So throughout scripture, God, and then later Jesus, is described in a lot of different ways, such as a consuming fire, wind, a lion, a lamb, a rock, a firm foundation, living water, salt, light, a vine. And these are all things in nature that we can experience and that we can observe and we can begin to grasp when we ponder upon these things, the nature of God. So if you think to yourself like, what does salt do? Well, salt brings out the best in food. Oh, 
Jesus brings out something good in me. What does water do? Well, let me think. Water really refreshes me when I'm thirsty. Um, actually, water, like, sustains me. I cannot live without water. Huh. Maybe Jesus refreshes my soul, and maybe I can't live without him. What is a rock like? Well, it's stable. It's firm. It's not going anywhere. I can stand on this. Huh. Maybe that is what God's like. And that's what the Romans verse is telling us. We can learn about the nature of God through nature. And I think it's awesome that God did not just rely on written word. He didn't just say, I'm really strong, and I'm really good, and I'm life-sustaining, and just that. But instead, he says, you know what, I'm going to use like a 3D, you know, experience here that you're going to be able to taste and touch and see and feel and know what I am like. Because let's face it, not all of us are readers. Some of us are auditory learners. Some of us are visual learners. So God took care, took all of creation and all of our five senses to help us grasp all of who he is. And it's awesome. Which is why being outdoors, experiencing nature, tasting real food, interacting with animals can have a profound impact on us. I mean, I'm sure you all have experienced this. And there's even scientific evidence for this. This is why they have, like, therapy dogs go to hospitals. Because the patient's blood pressure drops. Or they even take them into um, traumatic situations or into crowded airports during the holidays just to bring people's stress down. Or even just walking 15 minutes in a forest, they said, can reduce your heart rate and your blood pressure. And if you stay out there, it can impact your depression, your anxiety, and if you keep it up, it can even impact your mental clarity. How many of you have heard of forest bathing? It's a thing. The Japanese created this. I can't pronounce the Japanese word for it. But they even have parks dedicated to this, trying to encourage people to get out of the buildings, out of the cities, and experience nature because of the health benefits. And there are people, you can like Google this, in, uh, even in America, forest bathing guides. And the idea is that you just go out in nature. Now, it's not a hike, because a hike has a purpose. You're trying to get from one destination to another. But this is just to experience nature. So one guy had suggested, close your eyes, open them, and imagine that you're an alien experiencing all of this for the first time. So go and touch things, smell things, feel things, taste things, and experience nature. And just be there. Just be one with it and watch how it impacts you. I um, experienced just the power of nature when I went on a trip two years ago. I was on this adventure trip, and we cycled and kayaked the 120 miles of the Florida Keys. So for three days, I was outside 24-7, except ironically for when nature called, and then uh, used the restroom. But other than that, I camped outdoors, I ate outdoors, I was kayaking in the rain, I was cycling in the sun, and it was profound for me. I felt so alive, I felt incredibly present, and I felt really connected, not only to other people, but to God and to creation and everything. And so God wants us to connect with creation because it connects us with him. And lastly, 
God calls creation our final home. Now, often we think about when we die, we like escape this place and go off and play a harp in the clouds. But scripture doesn't finish the story that way. So first of all, Romans 8 tells us this. It says, for creation, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's us, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? So let me break down Paul's run-on sentences there. So what he's saying is, we saw this hope, and that was the resurrected Christ. We knew that, oh, right, he has conquered death, and this hope that we see in him will come for us one day, that we will be resurrected and have this body like Jesus did and be made new and experience God fully. Well, creation is expecting that same thing. They are expecting to be set free from sin like we will be and to experience freedom just like we will experience when Jesus returns. So all of creation, not just us, are anticipating and longing and groaning and hoping for this day when Jesus returns and all of creation, all of us who put our uh, lives in him are resurrected and redeemed. And then it becomes our final home. In Revelation, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is what all of creation is waiting for. It's like in pregnancy. It's got these birth pains for it. It's like we cannot wait for this day when all is set free and all is made right and is made new again. And that ultimate picture that heaven comes down, God comes down to dwell with man on earth, on this new earth. And when we think about that, it brings the whole story to full circle. What do we start with? God creating the earth and dwelling there with man until sin came and then we were separated. And then through Christ and his return, it all comes back together. And this new creation is where we will spend eternity So it should matter to us. So, as you walk out of this dark theater and back out into the world, I want you to ask yourself these three things. How can I care for creation? What does that look like in my life? How can I connect with creation? 
how can I get out there and really embrace and take in all that creation has for me? And how can I find hope in creation? How can I be reminded that this ultimately we will be my eternal home with God the Father? How does that bring you hope and encourage you during times when they're difficult? Think about these three things because of the goodness of creation and the story that God is writing with us. So get out there. The goodness of creation is waiting for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have created all of this for our pleasure and for yours as well. And I just pray that we embrace this role that we have as caretakers of creation. I pray that we embrace the opportunity to connect with you through creation. And I pray that we continue to see the world around us as a reminder of the hope of your return and your love for us, that all things will be made new and that we will dwell with you fully in your presence forever. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.